Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. It was basically a perfect fall day in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Sunny and cool. In the distance was a mountain glowing green and red and yellow in the late afternoon light. And in the foreground was the expanse of the old Gettysburg battlefield. And next to it was a grand farmhouse. If you stepped inside, you'd see an electric green kitchen, a bubblegum pink bedroom and bathroom, a TV set built into a wooden armoire. And you'd see President Dwight Eisenhower rustling about. It was October 4th, 1957. It was that autumn day here at his farm when Eisenhower got word that the Soviet Union had launched a small satellite into space, Sputnik. This is the moment that future generations would call shocking, terrifying, the start of the space race. And uh, he initially thought, maybe I need to go back down to Washington and be there because of this. But then mm, Eisenhower changed his mind. Then he said, oh, you know, this is not going to be that big a deal. He decided, I'll just stay here in Pennsylvania and leave it to my press secretary and the secretary of state back in D.C. They can handle it. They issued a statement and congratulating the Soviet Union on their success. So, uh, you know, it was a standard sort of thing. He didn't think there was much to it beyond that. This is the president of the United States at the height of the Cold War. This is a former military general who was elected precisely because Americans thought he'd be tough on the Soviet threat. So what in the world was Eisenhower thinking? I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post. And this is Moonrise. On October 4th, Russia launched an Earth satellite... The next day, members of the electrical engineering department at Caltech decided to listen for its signal solely out of curiosity. Excellent signals were received at a frequency of about 20 megahertz. remember learning about Sputnik in a history class. Reaction was one of astonishment and concern. A little satellite that launched in 1957 shocked the United States and pushed the U.S. to catch up with the Soviets. For it was now known that a potential enemy was at least temporarily ahead in developing means for space travel. Sputnik is considered a major event in the Cold War space race. But why? There's a lot of mythology associated with the with this Sputnik moment, so to speak. 
By the way, this is former NASA historian Roger Launius. And Sputnik was not a surprise, not to anybody who was paying attention. I mean, that's the first thing to understand. President Eisenhower certainly wasn't too surprised. He also wasn't too worried about Sputnik the night it launched. And yet today it's taken on this symbolism as a dramatic wake-up call, a call to action. Sputnik moment. Sputnik moment. Sputnik moments, you reserve those for grand vision. This is our generation's Sputnik moment. The fascinating thing is that when you look back carefully, you realize, yes, it was a big turning point, but for very different reasons than we tend to hear about. Let's back up to about seven years before Sputnik, where we had previously left off. It was the beginning of the 1950s. Americans were worried about nuclear war with the Soviets. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia had the atom secret caused state departments all over the world to stir uneasily. Science fiction was playing a larger role in American culture. The Planet Man! And Werner von Braun was leading the missile program for the U.S. Army. He was also writing about moon travel for Collier's magazine, and he was appearing on Disney shows about spaceflight. If we were to start today on an organized and well-supported space program, I believe a practical passenger rocket could be built and tested within 10 years. Von Braun knew that his best chance at convincing the United States to invest in space was to make the case that space exploration was a matter of national security. And he wasn't the only one. Robert Heinlein was making a similar argument in his science fiction tales around the same time. In 1950, the movie Destination Moon came out based on a book of his. And there's a famous scene in the film. The characters need to get funding for a trip to the moon. And they say, The first country that can use the moon for the launching of missiles will control the Earth. That, gentlemen, is the most important military fact of this century. This movie was a huge blockbuster. So years and years before you have an actual moon program, you have an entire country reading articles and watching movies like this that depict the moon as a strategic political asset and depict moon travel as something that's not only possible, but necessary. People are being told over and over again. Look, the nation that controls space will control the Earth. If we aren't there first, somebody else will be. And implicitly, they met the Soviet Union at that time. And we'll lose our status as a superpower if we don't get there before they do. This is Howard McCurdy, a space policy expert at American University. And they took it so far as to say that the first nation to get to the moon will win the Cold War because of its value as a military base for launching missiles. It's wrong, technically, but that didn't matter. At the core, you just got a bunch of people who are science fiction fans who are space exploration nuts, and they're looking for a justification to spend $25 billion going to the moon. And the Cold War is a wonderful justification for that. 
So this is the message that's being pushed from all sides, from science fiction writers and scientists. The nation that controls space will control the Earth. The nation that controls space will control the Earth. But despite all these depictions of moon travel in pop culture, and all the cases people were making in the 50s for why we should go there, not a single object had actually been launched into space yet. So how would that happen? How would the Sputnik satellite become the very first space explorer? There was a scientist... One of my personal favorites... ...named Lloyd Berkner. He becomes one of these scientific power brokers, and his fingerprints are all over everything. You look at anything that's done in science and technology during and after World War II, Berkner's there in some form or another. Berkner was a master of early radio and radar technology, but some would say that his greatest skill was actually wrangling political support and funding for the sciences. He held a prominent spot on the U.S. Research and Development Board, which was a group that made science recommendations to the Department of Defense. And he was a top-secret consultant on psychological warfare for the State Department. He was also one of those charismatic types like Von Braun. Very smart, capable, convincing individuals who had the ear of the president. They, they have the capability to sort of whisper in the ears of power. And like Von Braun, Berkner was great at championing space exploration. Space really breaks down into four major objectives. This is archival audio of Lloyd Berkner. These objectives are science, the civil applications, the military applications, and out of these grow very important political objectives. But where Von Braun was seen, well, basically as a self-promoter, Lloyd Berkner wasn't. He was great at selling big ideas. He was also genuinely adored and admired. One spring evening in 1950, Berkner was over at his friend James Van Allen's house, a famous astrophysicist. The cherry blossoms were reaching peak bloom in Washington, and Van Allen's modest brick home was just a few miles away. Van Allen, Berkner, a couple other scientists were all over having dinner with a visiting British geophysicist. So they're sitting around the house after dinner, eating chocolate layer cake that Van Allen's wife had made. And the scientists start talking about all these weapons, these new technologies being developed. Rockets, radar, missile guidance systems. And Berkner had an idea. What if they could convince governments around the world to use these tools for scientific research of space? It's, of course, the same kind of wish that Von Braun and all these other scientists are having. But Berkner struck on a concrete first step toward the dream. They should propose a worldwide space science initiative. It probably sounded like a naive idea, particularly in a charged Cold War environment. But there was actually some precedent for it. 
twice before, in the late 1800s and then the 1930s, there had been something called the International Polar Year. It was a big global effort where scientists from different countries conducted research together in the polar regions to learn more about the Earth's geophysics. Berkner had actually gone to Antarctica for it. Anyway, he's here getting all excited that they could do something similar in the late 1950s. But this time, instead of it being a study of the polar regions, it would be this massive scientific study of Earth conducted in part from space. Of course, all the scientists sitting around Van Allen's living room loved it. After the dinner party, Berkner pursued it, and he convinced the International Council of Scientific Unions to organize this worldwide effort. They decided to call it the International Geophysical Year. They scheduled it for 1957 to 1958, and eventually, 67 countries signed on to collaborate, including the U.S. and the Soviet Union. A centerpiece of Berkner's vision was the launch of a scientific satellite. The technology didn't exist yet, but the concept did. He wanted a little data collector that could launch from a rocket, orbit the Earth, and collect space samples. Berkner knew that the U.S. government could do it. Their rocket technology, which is what would be needed to shoot a satellite into space, was getting pretty advanced. The problem was, there was a new American president, and he was going to be a tough sell. Dwight Eisenhower came into office in 1953, following Harry Truman, and fun little science experiments were not on his priority list. Eisenhower was a Republican and a five-star general. He had led the Allies to victory in World War II. My best to you, my thanks to you. Other than George Washington, Eisenhower is the highest-ranking general ever to have served as an American president. He was a reserved and calculating guy who entered office focused on the budget, plotting how to beat back communism, and determined to keep another world war from breaking out. And as far as the Eisenhower administration was concerned, that's all they cared about, really. It's not that they objected to space exploration to scientific activities, but they didn't view that as something that they needed to do. So it must have seemed weird and surprising when in the summer of 1955, the White House announced that it had approved millions of dollars to launch a scientific satellite. As I see it, however, the most important result of the International Geophysical Year is the demonstration of the ability of peoples of all nations to work together harmoniously for the common good. The United States is proud to have a part in this great scientific undertaking. How on earth had Berkner pulled that one off? I went searching to make sense of this, and I came across a memo from the Eisenhower administration. It was top secret. It's since been declassified. And suddenly, everything clicked. Not just why Eisenhower agreed to do it, 
but why he later reacted in the calm way he did when Sputnik launched. The memo is labeled NSC 5520. NSC stands for National Security Council. And this is the memo that was circulated among Eisenhower, his advisors, and his national security leaders right before the decision to fund the satellite was announced. The memo was supposed to get everyone in the administration on the same page about why they were doing this. And there are a few really big insights that this memo reveals. One is that the U.S. knew the Soviet Union was already planning to build a satellite for the International Geophysical Year as well. It explicitly says so right here in the memo. It says, quote, A group of Russia's top scientists is now believed to be working on a satellite program. Okay, next thing it reveals. Here's another quote. Considerable prestige and psychological benefits will accrue to the nation which first is successful in launching a satellite. Okay, so what this is saying is that the administration wasn't necessarily concerned a Soviet satellite would frighten the American public, but it did recognize that there was going to be some Cold War political advantage to launching first. Now, this point didn't appear to particularly be important to Eisenhower, but you can tell that some of his staff gave it a lot of thought. Attached to the memo is a cover letter written by Nelson Rockefeller, who was Eisenhower's special assistant for foreign affairs. And he writes in his cover letter, quote, I should like to register my enthusiastic support of the proposal. And he adds, the stake of prestige that is involved makes this a race that we cannot afford to lose. Finally, here's probably the most important secret of the memo. It says they should do this because it would be really helpful for the spy satellite program they want to develop. The U.S. had already tried spying on Russia with airplanes, with balloons. We tried it with spies and covert operations. Howard McCurdy again. But there was one thing they hadn't tried yet that might work better. And that's the spy satellite. Dwight Eisenhower basically couldn't care less about a scientific satellite. But a spy satellite, that could be really useful. Eisenhower was absolutely convinced that if he could fly satellites over the Soviet Union, it would give us any advanced warning of military maneuvers. So in this memo, you can see his advisors persuading him that, one, this scientific satellite will help us test drive the technology, and two, it will help us secure freedom of space for those future spy satellites. Now let me explain that for just a moment. Since satellites didn't exist yet, there were no rules for whether they could fly over other countries. And obviously, Eisenhower wanted his future spy satellites to be able to fly over the Soviet Union. So he figured the best way he could ensure that would be to send up a benign science satellite first and set the precedent. So, on May 27th, 1955, Eisenhower, a bit reluctantly, officially approved the plan for a scientific satellite. He went into that decision knowing that the Soviets were going to launch one, knowing that there would be some benefit to launching it first, 
But most importantly, just knowing that this scientific satellite was going to pave the way for another satellite program he actually really cared about, one that had real national security consequences. And just like that, Berkner and Von Braun and Heinlein and all the space and science enthusiasts had finally done it. They had figured out how to convince the government to fund the first real scientific space fantasy. The government solicited proposals from the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, for who was going to build, well, not just the satellite itself, but the rocket that would launch the satellite into space. The Army's pitch to get this project was, surprise, it was written by none other than Werner von Braun, who was still at the time the head of the Army's ballistic missile program. Here was his chance to finally work on something space-related. But in the end, his proposal was passed over, and the Navy was the one put in charge of launching the program called Project Vanguard. More than anything, it looks like the reason Von Braun didn't get it was that he was told he needed to keep building ballistic missiles for military purposes. The ability to launch what's known as an intercontinental ballistic missile from your territory in the United States or the Soviet Union and hit territory in the other country uh, was what was being focused on. Satellites were important. But huge missiles that could deliver a nuclear bomb halfway across the world, that was the priority for Eisenhower. It was simultaneously a professional compliment and a personal blow to Von Braun. Eisenhower was essentially saying, you're our weapons guy. Leave the silly space stuff to someone else. It was a decision that was a reversal of fortunes. Because as Von Braun was being rejected, on the other side of the planet, another familiar name was finally getting his chance. By 1956, the United States and the Soviet Union had both publicly committed to contributing these scientific satellites for the International Geophysical Year. These were the two countries in the world with the most developed rocket technologies. So, you know, they would both be helping out this global community of scientists. And the person who sold the Soviet Union on that idea was Chief rocket designer Sergei Korolev. When we last saw Sergei Korolev, it was the end of World War II, and he was in Germany scooping up Nazi missile secrets for the Soviet Union. He climbed on top of Von Braun's abandoned V2s. He surveyed the advanced rocket production centers there. But then what? What was supposed to be a short mission to recover some Nazi technology turned into a much longer stay for Korolev. The Soviets occupied East Germany following the war, and Korolev lived there for a while, 
He built up Soviet research labs where Nazi facilities had been. It must have been oddly liberating for him. He finally got to dream big about rocket work again. And the harsh hand of Stalin was definitely less strong the farther that you were from Moscow. In the ashes of Germany, Korolev found new life. After Joseph Stalin died in 1953, Nikita Khrushchev became the leader of the Soviet Union. And this gave Korolev an opening. Uh, Korolev had convinced um, the leadership at the time, which included Khrushchev, NASA chief historian Bill Barry, convinced them that you know we've been building kind of incrementally from short-range missiles to medium-range missiles. Under Stalin, Korolev had mostly been ordered to build smaller missiles and not to experiment too much with more ambitious things like intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs. But now, Stalin was dead. So he goes to Khrushchev. And he goes, I could build you an ICBM that could get from here in, in Soviet Union to the United States, because that's the main threat, right? You know, we want to be able to threaten the United States, but I can get you a missile that will do that, right? And Khrushchev said, wonderful, give it a try. Korolev was also like, oh, and while I'm at it, we can also just whip up a satellite to launch for the International Geophysical Year. And, and Khrushchev goes, oh, okay. He wasn't really excited about it. But sure, why not? Korolev set to work on everything. And by 1957, his team was ready to do a first test of the ballistic missile. And uh, as soon as they test it, uh, Khrushchev goes, this is great. They successfully launched this missile. They launched it from Kazakhstan out to the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is theoretically far enough that they could hit the United States with it. And so Khrushchev announces to them, well, we have a missile. We can hit the United States. Crickets. Nothing. Nobody responded. Khrushchev couldn't believe it. This was the world's first successful test of an ICBM, and it was supposed to terrify the United States. It meant the Soviets, in theory at least, could launch a nuclear weapon on the U.S. But Eisenhower met the news with a shrug, in part because he had no real proof the Soviets weren't just exaggerating their claims, and also because this was Eisenhower's tactic to downplay a rival's achievement. His stoic approach worked. The Soviet news didn't make a big splash or rattle the world. But the test had still been worth it for Korolev. He needed that rocket for the other project he cared about. And so Korolev goes to Khrushchev and says, Hey, um, you know, we, I built this missile for you. You know, we could launch something to space with this thing. Yeah, and in fact, I got a little satellite I'd like to launch into space with this thing. And Khrushchev was like... Oh yeah, right. We were going to do that little science satellite launch. Whatever, might as well. Go ahead. Eisenhower was also unenthusiastic about how things were shaping up in the United States. The U.S. science satellite program, Vanguard, was behind schedule and way over budget. He was also getting reports that the Soviets might launch their satellite first, sometime in the fall. Ugh, 
This was supposed to be a fairly small, straightforward thing in service of more important military goals. Now it was starting to become a headache for Eisenhower. He was preparing himself to downplay yet another Russian achievement. There are memos from his advisors suggesting, just play it cool if that happens. After all, this is a small scientific stunt. It won't mess up our spy satellite plans. So Eisenhower just watched the days tick toward autumn. We finally get to the first week of October, and scientists from around the world had gathered in Washington at the National Academy of Sciences. They were there for this six-day conference to discuss rocket and satellite research as part of the International Geophysical Year. Here's Roger Lanius. And all that week, the, the delegation from the Soviet Union, they were running around. It's like the worst-kept secret at the conference. And you know how scientists are. They're all talking to each other, and, and they're sort of hinting, the Russian delegation, you know, we may have an announcement before the end of this week. <laughs> John Hagen, who was the Navy's lead scientist on Project Vanguard, was there. So was Lloyd Berkner, the American who had proposed this international geophysical year in the first place. The whispers were spreading that something big was about to happen. So guys like Lloyd Berkner are running around thinking, well, what are they talking about? It's got to be the launch of a satellite. Now, what else could it possibly be? The meetings and the mingling of these international scientists continued all week. And, um, and on that Friday, uh, their closing ceremonies for the conference are taking place, and they end with a, with a cocktail party at the Soviet embassy here in Washington, D.C., the embassy was only a few blocks north of the White House. Today, it's actually still the Russian ambassador's residence. And it's this elegant Beaux-Arts building with high ceilings and gilded rooms. And the scientists headed up to the second floor ballroom, where they were chatting and drinking. And it was close to sunset. And at that cocktail party, Walter Sullivan, who was the New York Times reporter, science reporter at the time, comes into that cocktail party, finds Lloyd Berkner, and whispers in his ear, it's up. And Berkner knew exactly what he was talking about. And at that point, um, he bangs on his glass, gets the attention of the room, and announces that the Soviets have, have been successful in launching a satellite into orbit, and we raise our glasses to... to congratulate them on their on their success. And everybody does that. There's, a, there's applause, and they go around the room and talk to each other and so on and so forth. Sputnik, or in its English translation, fellow traveler. Just a little beeping blip passing across the sky. Then there's the thought, maybe we can see it. And then they all go up to the roof of the Soviet embassy to see if they can find it in the sky. <laughs> they can't, of course, but nonetheless, that's, that's how they approach this. It, it wasn't a great, uh, it wasn't a great surprise, and it also wasn't a great fear. And initially, it wasn't a great fear for the American people either, although that's usually how it is remembered, that, oh my gosh, everybody's now terrified that the Soviets can do this. 
the reality is that initially a lot of people were sort of excited by it. The new age has begun. For Lloyd Berkner in particular, but really for all these scientists, those little beeps were the sound of space dreams finally coming true. As a result of intensive work by research institutes and designing bureaus, the first artificial Earth satellite in the world has now been created. This first satellite was today successfully launched in the USSR. Eisenhower told his press secretary to make an announcement the next day, congratulating the Soviets, but also pointing out to the American public that this was a publicity stunt. He thought, that should do it. Besides, even though they had lost out on the prestige of launching first, the Eisenhower administration had still achieved its bigger goal from the memo, freedom of space. All Eisenhower had to do was play it cool, allow Sputnik to circle overhead, and the precedent would be set that satellites don't have restrictions. It didn't matter whether the one to set the precedent was a Soviet satellite or a U.S. satellite. The result was the same. The U.S. could move forward with spy satellites. The Eisenhower administration kind of goes, that solves our problem. It hadn't played out quite the way they hoped, but they had still gotten the thing that, in Eisenhower's mind, was the most important. So here we are, back at the launch of Sputnik. And you can see how it makes sense why Eisenhower wouldn't rush back to return to the White House, why he wouldn't clamor to make some grand pronouncement to the American public. From his perspective, space exploration and military power were not the same thing. They just weren't. This was not a very big deal to him. The president wasn't shocked. And the country at first wasn't shocked. So how did Sputnik become the foreboding start of the space race? The answer is someone else wanted it to be. Someone wanted this moment to be taken far more seriously. Someone wanted it to shake the American public. Someone wanted it to drum up attention on Capitol Hill. Someone wanted it to look like the American space story was still waiting to start, rather than that it had already long before begun. That someone wasn't a scientist or a sci-fi writer, though he would eventually help their cause of getting to the moon. It was Senator Lyndon Johnson. The night Sputnik launched, Johnson was at his cattle ranch down in Texas, and news of Sputnik's launch came over the airwaves. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. One of the great scientific feats of the age. Just like the scientists gathered in Washington, Johnson scanned the dark Texas sky for the tiny ball orbiting overhead. 
but where the scientists were looking for a symbol of global achievement and scientific advancement, Johnson had a different thought. The nation that controls space will control the Earth. That was a terrifying thought, pulled straight from science fiction. It was the kind of line, the kind of idea, that could get stuck in your head and keep you up at night. Johnson's thoughts rose above Texas, to the heartland, the cities, the families flicking off lights in their homes. What would run through their minds as they tried to sleep? The nation that controls space will control the Earth. It was that very line Johnson would use a few months later when he delivered a speech that turned Sputnik from a scientific curiosity into an existential Cold War threat. It was that line bellowed out by Johnson on the floor of Congress that would announce the space race has begun. the second half of Moonrise. We pick up where the space race story usually begins, with Sputnik, with NASA, with Johnson and Kennedy, with astronauts and launch pads. But nothing is quite what it seems. The second half of the Moonrise podcast begins Tuesday, September 17th. Join us back here then for the rest of our journey from the Earth to the Moon. If you've been enjoying the podcast, now is a great time to tell a friend to binge the first half of the series and get caught up. Moonrise is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the work of producer Bishop Sand, advisor Carol Alderman, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Subscribe to Moonrise wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find it on the Washington Post site at washingtonpost.com slash moonrise. Very many thanks to the experts who appeared on this episode. Bill Barry, Chief Historian of NASA. Roger Lanius, former Chief Historian of NASA. Howard McCurdy, Professor of Space Policy at American University. And Margaret Weidekamp, a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Archival recordings came from the State Archives of Florida, the U.S. National Archives, Radio Moscow, the Commonwealth Club of California, Critical Past, Matthias Bopp and his site dd1us.de, NASA, the U.S. Department of Energy, the 2011 State of the Union Address, Dartmouth, and the film Destination Moon. 
I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back September 17th to dive into space and the presidency in Chapter 7.